It's another blessed opportunity, isn't it, to assemble and to gather, to come together as the Pippin Church of Christ, to do so, of course, in the comfort and the tranquility of this hour. And our goal, our desire, our motivation to worship the God of heaven, the one who made us, and the one who sustains and provides for us each day. It is certainly an honor to be always to gather according to His will and for the purpose of exalting Him, and we are striving to do that tonight. For the next few moments, we'll turn our attention to a lesson that perhaps by virtue of title will be a bit on the unusual portion, or at least an unusual direction, but I trust that as we give some thought to it, we'll each, in fact, be able to wrestle with and give some thought to matters that maybe have troubled us. I hope as we do that, we're going to start by way of these brief introductory remarks. You'll notice that, of course, we're blessed to have a gospel message such that the particular law of the gospel touches every aspect and every avenue of life. Aren't we taught in 2 Peter 1 verse 3, According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. You noticed with me, right, that it did assert that all things that pertain to life and godliness, not some things, not most things, everything that touches every avenue or aspect of your life and mine, by virtue of principle, is presented in this book somewhere. As you and I rightly divide it and seek to apply it, we'll have the answer thus to everything that this life may throw at us. In John 14, 6, didn't Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, and therefore this is the exclusive thoroughfare that leads to heaven. Tonight I hope we can use it to maybe address a particular matter or question that maybe has crossed all of our minds at some point or another. What about the issue of self-defense? The issue of perhaps even utilizing a weapon like a gun. Is that consistent with Christianity? On this next slide, I've begun with a few scenarios. Maybe these have crossed your mind. I remember not long after becoming a Christian, there were folks talking along matters like this and asking, well, what would you do? I suppose it'd be easy enough to trouble your mind with it. Consider someone breaks into your house at night. They do so, perhaps threaten your wife, threaten your children. What do you do? Doesn't the Bible say to love your enemies? Can I harm that man? Could I shoot him with my gun in the knee and at least impair him to where I could protect my family? Or out of love for him, must I refrain from that? That's a good question. What about another when you're driving along the roadway, you come to a stoplight and this person who you do not know jumps in the back of your truck, breaks out the window, threatens perhaps yourself or your family? Can you take any evasive measures to protect them or in deference to loving that enemy? Must you do nothing? Another pretty good question. What about the third one? Somebody abducts one of your children kidnaps them. Perhaps you have knowledge or come to learn that this, where this person's located, can you harm him in any way to protect your child? Another pretty good question. I raise all of those because maybe you, you too have thought about them or at least wrestled with them. You and I can rest assured the Bible doesn't contradict itself. 
somewhere there are answers to questions like these. Can a, can a Christian defend himself? Can a Christian carry a gun? And could he use that gun to defend himself or his family, not necessarily to kill the person, but at least to impair or inhibit him? Can a Christian defend himself? Let's study that tonight. I don't claim that we'll be able to look at all the answers to all the scenarios that might be presented, but at least some of them I believe we should be able to consider. As we study them, may I suggest at the bottom of that slide are passages to which your mind may already have raced. Considerations that maybe are the very ones used to paint these issues as being problematic. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 5, 44, Love your enemies. Bless them that persecute you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. If the Lord said to love my enemies, can I do anything that might harm him, injure him? Didn't Paul perhaps extend that or at least present to us some additional matters in Romans 12, 17 when he said, Recompense to no man evil for evil. Now what do we make of these passages? Are they the final answer to all of this? It would seem to me that answer is no. There are other verses that in fact provide us information that are the main subjects of our discussion tonight. I'd like for you to study them along with me. Take notes if you would. And maybe at some future time we'll need to revisit some of these. For as I said, our time won't permit us to discuss every potential scenario. But let's start in the Old Testament. Quite often the Old Testament we find in it principles or precepts whereby we can gain a, perhaps a deeper appreciation of at least the proper way to think about things. Now clearly, we must look to the New Testament for our final presentation, our final conclusions for the law of our day. But how did the God of, our, of heaven allow this matter to be considered in the Old Testament? In Exodus chapter 22, we'll find our first place of visitation tonight. In Exodus chapter 22, this of course was in the law of Moses. At this point, the children of Israel were encamped at Mount Sinai and Moses was up on the mount and God was providing the laws that were to govern that people. And amongst those laws, verses 2 through 4 of Exodus 22 read like this. If a thief be found breaking up and be smitten that he die, there shall no blood be shed for him. If the sun be risen upon him, there shall be blood shed for him. For he should make full restitution. If he have nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the theft be certainly found in his hand alive, whether it be ox or ass or sheep, he shall restore double. Now those three verses, of course, immediately had reference to a thief. But I'd like you to notice the very interesting and rather amazing way in which the God of heaven presented this. Let me read it again and emphasize a few things as we go. If a thief be found breaking up, so someone has broken into a tent of an ancient Israelite, and be smitten that he die, so the homeowner attempts in the defense of himself, his family, or his possessions, and he kills the thief, there shall no blood be shed for him. So in other words, the Israelite was well within his rights to defend himself and his possession and his family against the thief. No blood was to be shed for that thief. 
Now, I've asked you to notice on the slide that that was the Old Testament way that blood being shed for. Other translations read that, no blood guilt in his for. You and I remember in the Old Testament, there was, of course, frequently this issue of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand and a life for a life. Now, we notice that all that, of course, meant that you couldn't, with premeditation, take another life. But yet here, he's killed somebody. The thief has broken in. He has perhaps begun to already tear up and do damage, and the homeowner kills him. May I ask you to notice the next verse, though, presents a very critical part of understanding this. It says, if the sun be risen upon him, verse 3. So notice in verse 2, the sun had not risen upon him. In other words, in verse number 2, the thief was breaking in and it was nighttime. You couldn't tell what he was doing and you couldn't tell the purpose for which he was there. In other words, here's someone breaking into your house. You don't know if he's going to take your life or those of your loved ones. You have no idea. For it's night, then you can't see. Point is, if the sun's up, though, if it's daytime, you can see there's a thief. He's not a murderer. You can't kill him. There's a great difference. There's a presumption in that pair of verses, then, that in the nighttime hour... You had the right, it was in your presumption, to defend yourself and to defend your family. For notice, he said there was no blood guiltiness for that thief. Now again, as we may expound upon that blood guiltiness, you'll remember, of course, that that again had to do with that principle I stated earlier. Remember, if one person took the life of another, the near of kin of the one that was dead had by God the right to go and take the life of the one who took the life of his near of kin. That was the way the Old Testament law worked. But notice here God says you can't do that. This thief was breaking in, it was night time, and this person had right to defend himself and his family. And although he killed him, that man's near of kin does not have the right by God to go and kill the person that took his life. Now you'll notice there was a presumption in this that a person could defend himself. You'll notice, in fact, in the next pair of verses, verses 3 and 4, there was a description set forth that again, in the daytime you weren't allowed to take the person's life because you could tell he was a thief then. He wasn't out to murder you, he was just stealing. You might notice in light of those things, that helps us appreciate too that the cities of refuge were, in fact, commanded by God, weren't they? Six cities that were allotted and positioned in the confines of the land owned by Israel. And those cities were such that if you accidentally took a life, you could flee to those cities and there you could be protected until the, life, until the death of the high priest, and then you'd be free to leave. As you and I think about this, you'll notice it has at least given us a perspective to appreciate that even under that very strong and harsh law, life for life, God did grant that the Israelites at least had legitimate right to attempt to defend themselves. Let's consider another passage. In the book of Nehemiah, turn over a few books in the Old Testament with me. As you come to Nehemiah, the fourth chapter, could I invite you to consider the following? The reading is a bit lengthier than the previous one, but not, not overly so. 
the setting is this. By this point, the children of Israel have already gone into captivity and have been granted by God the blessing and right to return. And as they have returned to Jerusalem, Nehemiah has found the walls in very dire condition. In fact, they've been broken down. But the city was in need of protection, and so Nehemiah begins the effort and the labor to rebuild those walls. And thus, he enthuses the people and energizes them as they begin to rebuild the walls, what happens? Let's read. Beginning in verse 13 of Nehemiah chapter 4. Therefore set I in the lower places behind the wall and on the higher places, I even set the people after their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, Be not ye afraid of them, Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. And it came to pass, when our enemies heard that it was known unto us, and God had brought their counsel to naught, that we returned all of us to the wall, every one unto his work. And it came to pass from that time forth that the half of my servants wrought in the work, and the other half of them held both the spears, the shields, and the bows, and the Habergians, and the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. They which build it on the wall, and they that bear burdens with those that laid it, every one with one of his hands wrought in the work, and with the other hand held a weapon. For the builders every one had his sword girded by his side, and so builded. And he that sounded the trumpet was by me." There were enemies, you see, that did not want the wall of Jerusalem rebuilt. In fact, these individuals, these peoples, they rather enjoyed the fact that Jerusalem had been destroyed. They rather enjoyed the fact it was now defenseless. And so when Nehemiah and the people of Israel began the reconstruction of that wall, there were a number of people who didn't like it even a little bit. In fact, the book of Nehemiah lists three of their enemies. You may recall some of their names. There was old Geshem. But you also remember the additional two. And as these enemies and their names were provided, you notice that they, in fact, brought the people and enemies together to try to stop that rebuilding. At that point, what did Nehemiah do? Did he say, we are powerless to do anything to these enemies because we must love them? That isn't at all what he did. In fact, he equipped the people of Israel with swords and with other things, and thus they proceeded in their work. But in one hand they carried a sword, and the other hand they carried a shovel. Or what other work implement was involved? Question, did those Israelites carry weapons? Did they carry with it things that could be used to do injury or damage to an enemy? Sure they did, and they intended to use them. If the enemies came near, to try to stop that procession, to stop that rebuilding. God approved Nehemiah and the people to defend that effort and that work. Did you notice there in verse 13 who was equipped? Were these military people? Were they the particular individuals that encompassed the military men, if you please, of ancient Israel? Note again the reading of verse 13. I set the people after their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. These were common citizens of Israel, men and women, maybe even boys and girls. 
but they had swords, and they were in fact commissioned by Nehemiah to use them if the enemy approached. Note again verse 18. For the builders, every one had his sword girded by his side. So as these people were laying blocks and bricks, if you please, in light of that wall, they were carrying a sword. Thus, do we conclude from that passage that these individuals had the blessing of God to carry a weapon? They certainly did. Now, as you look at some of the comments I've asked you to make on the top of that slide, we have thus seen two examples, one in in Exodus and now one in Nehemiah. And in this Nehemiah passage in particular, these individuals were common citizens, but they carried weapons. Now, they didn't go out looking to use them, but if threatened and if those enemies came, then they were commissioned to use them. As we've at least digested those two considerations, may I ask, and may I invite each of us to consider, God allowed His people to defend themselves on those two occasions. How about Ezekiel chapter 9? As we proceed further into the Old Testament and look at chapter 9 of this particular book, The setting here will be very different, wholly unlike the previous two we've seen. In fact, I simply would like to ask you to to consider with me the wording that's used and how it is that this gives us a perspective on the behavior of our God in heaven. Beginning in verse number 1 of Ezekiel chapter 9. This is in the midst, a section of that book, in which Ezekiel was blessed by God with a number of visions visions that almost it seems were given one after the other. As these visions themselves were provided to him, this particular vision will speak to our lesson tonight. He cried also in mine ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near every, even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. May I ask you to notice, it says, He is destroying weapons. This person possessed a destroying weapon. And in this vision, God told Ezekiel, Make sure you have it with you. Verse 2, And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lieth toward the north, and every man a slaughter weapon in his hand. So note, it wasn't just a rock. It was a weapon that could be used to slaughter. And one man among them was clothed with linen and a writer's inkhorn by his side. And they went in and stood beside the brazen altar. And the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub whereon he was to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side. And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. We'll pause before we continue, but notice that this one that had the writer's ink corn. In this vision, God had given him orders, you go through the city and every one of them, every person that follows me, every one that hates the abominations that take place when it comes from opposing God, you make a, a mark in the forehead of them. Again, all of those that follow me. Now look at the next verse. And to the others, so this is all the people that do not have that mark on them, all the people then who do not hate the abomination of idolatry, all of those who are not interested in following God. Let's see. 
Go ye after him through the city and smite. Let not your eye spare, neither have any pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women, but come not near any man upon whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. Then they began at the ancient men which were before the house. So as you think about that vision, isn't it interesting to notice here that those who were opposed to God and who, in fact, because of that did not have that mark on them. In this vision, God commissioned it such that there was to be procession through the city and they were to be slaughtered. What does that make you and I think about when it comes to the end of time? Now we know that literally that's not something that occurred. But in that vision, Ezekiel saw it. As you and I think about the end of time, may I submit to you, Revelation presents a scenario that reminds us so powerfully of this. For at the end of time, everybody that has not followed and obeyed the gospel will be eternally lost. Every one of them. It doesn't matter how much they pity and cry. It doesn't matter how much they beg and plead. They've disobeyed the Master. And might we say, they will then be subject to the second death. Every one of them. May I say that in that, can we not appreciate our God is a God who in fact has appreciated that even in that vision there was a defense to those who followed the Lord, but to those who were not, that privilege was certainly not seen. These three, it seems, in the Old Testament speak so amazingly to weapons and to their utility, but what about the New Testament? I know we each are much more keenly intrigued and interested in that. Earlier tonight, Brother Colonel read from Luke 22. Could I invite you to turn to that passage, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time in it. For it seems that Jesus had something to say about the very question we're asking of ourselves this evening. Luke 22, verses 35 and following. In fact, here are some comments about it, but as usual, it seems much better for us to read it first and then reflect on the setting and give thought to what Jesus actually said. Beginning in verse number 35. And he said unto them, When I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes, lacked ye anything? And they said, Nothing. Then said he unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise his scrip. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you, that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, It is enough. It's easy to notice that swords were a part of the discussion here, and the scene's a very telling one. Replay it in your mind with me. It's the evening before Jesus was crucified. They had just celebrated the Passover, and right after it, the Lord had instituted the Lord's Supper. They had not yet gone out to the Garden of Gethsemane, and conversation was taking place between Jesus and the apostles that were still gathered. So Judas has already gone. It's Jesus and the eleven. And among the conversations, you'll notice that Jesus has already told Peter, tonight, three times, you're going to deny me before the, before the rooster crows. Right after that, verse 35 picks up, Jesus said, 
when I sent you without purse. That recollects to our mind that setting when the limited commission was given. Jesus, remember, sent them to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Don't go to the Gentiles yet. You go to the Jews and preach the powerful message of the coming kingdom. And yet, at that time when Jesus sent them, here He reminds them, I sent you without purse. I sent you without script. I sent you without shoes. And you and I may remember back in Matthew 10 when that limited commission was given, they were sent. And they didn't take with them their wallet. They didn't take with them their bag. But now Jesus says it's different. They admitted they didn't lack anything for they were providentially cared for and provided. But now notice now in verse number 36. Now Jesus says, this is different than the limited commission. But now he that hath a purse, let him take it. And likewise, his scrip, that means his wallet, and he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Now may I ask, what's a sword used for? It didn't use to tickle the enemy. A sword is used for defense. It's used to do harm, to do damage, if you please, to one who threatens. Jesus had frequently taught those apostles that they would not be well received. In John 16, 2, He even told them, those who kill you are at times are going to think they're doing God's service. And yet here He makes a statement of preparation for them and to them. If you don't have a sword, sell your garment and buy one. And of course the implication is to carry it with you. Now maybe as you and I reflect upon that, you and I might immediately ponder, was He giving them instruction relative to what was to occur that night? And almost certainly that's not the case. We all know what was going to happen the next day. The officers are going to come. They're going to arrest Jesus. All the disciples are going to flee. Every one of them, Mark 14, 50. So maybe some might argue, perhaps Jesus was giving this statement in light of what was to happen the next day. Almost certainly that's not true. Remember, it was already night. Who were they going to find to buy their garment late at night? In the wee hours of the morning, what shopkeeper is going to be open to buy a garment? And furthermore, what place that sells swords is going to be open that time of day to permit them to buy a sword? Again, it seems certain that Jesus wasn't here telling them about things in light of the next day. He was telling them a general matter that was to be vital in their preparation as they would send the gospel message forth in the coming months and years. Those that don't have a sword, get one. To carry a sword would have meant they carried a weapon. Did you notice in verse number 37 and 38, they said, we've got two of them. Two of the apostles were carrying swords, at least two of them. You'll notice then, you and I have record later, what happened in regard to one of them. The next day when the soldiers, when those officers did come and arrest Jesus, who drew his sword and used it? Peter did. He drew his sword and cut off Malchus's right ear, remember? Jesus rebuked Peter on that occasion, but did not rebuke him for having the sword. He rebuked him for using it at the wrong time and in the wrong way. 
Remember, Jesus earlier in Matthew 26, 53, He had said, I could pray to my Father and He'd send me 12 legions of angels to deliver me from this time. But that's not what's going to happen. For I've got to suffer and I've got to die. Jesus, you see, could have easily delivered Himself. And His rebuke of Peter was not for the fact Peter was carrying a sword. It was for the fact he was using it at the wrong time. It wasn't in the will of God that he defend Jesus on that occasion. Jesus had to die. Don't we read in John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus was going to die and He knew it. God knew it too. The apostles didn't know it yet. In fact, Old Testament prophecy had foretold that it would be. In Psalm 22, it was prophesied he'd be pierced. In Isaiah 53, the suffering servant is detailed in there. He's going to die and be buried with those that are rich. Yes, indeed, the anointed one's life was to be taken. Peter simply used his sword at the wrong time, but Jesus didn't rebuke him for having it. May I say then that carrying a sword, carrying a weapon, apparently wasn't inconsistent with the gospel message. Some of those comments you'll notice at the bottom of that slide help us then to appreciate that inasmuch as these statements are found, carrying swords, maybe it brings us to one final passage and then some additional discussion. This final passage in 1 Timothy 5 takes us to this consideration. 1 Timothy chapter 5, of course, is that section of Scripture in which Paul was giving instructions to Timothy relative to the behavior and conduct of the church. Among those statements made, this one is found. It's probably one that has often rested upon our heart and mind because there's such great responsibility in it. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house... He hath denied the faith, and is worse than an infidel. Now no doubt we've often reflected upon that in light of, I need to provide for myself and my family. God has given me that obligation, that responsibility. I suppose it's easy to think of that in terms of food. I've got to make sure my wife and children have something to eat. And I need to make sure they have appropriate clothing. And by God, I must ensure they have sufficient protection from the elements. But it's a bit interesting when you look at what that word provide is in the original Greek. That word provide means to respect, to have regard for. It doesn't just mean to make sure their stomach's full. It means something apparently much more inclusive, much more expansive than that. May I ask, doesn't that at least have something to say about how we would answer or at least respond in some of those scenarios we raised earlier? Someone breaks into your house and this man is threatening my wife and my children. May we say those who put those rather contradicting circumstances here pit our love for our enemies against our love for our wife. So if I do nothing and I allow that man to injure or kill my wife, am I saying I love the enemy more than I love my wife? Again, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. 
Could I use a weapon to impair or injure that man, but don't kill him, but at least in the love for my wife, protect her? And of course, the same for my children. It seems to me that isn't at all inconsistent with the carrying of a sword. Why did Jesus want His disciples to carry a sword if He didn't expect them to use it, to defend themselves under the powerful arm of persecution and threats that were to come their way? You and I remember more than once in the book of Acts how that some of those apostles and some of those individuals found themselves put to death sometimes by governmental authorities, sometimes under great duress and difficulties otherwise. In 2 Corinthians 11, as well as 2 Corinthians 4, Paul highlighted some of that which all of the apostles faced. Did he not say, I die daily? Paul apparently often lived under threat of his own life. Who's waiting for me? What are they going to do? And in Acts 23, he even learned through the... Wording of his nephew, there are people waiting to take your life. And if Lysias carries you under a certain way by a roadway, they're going to kill you. Wouldn't it be something to always live under the threat of death from those Jews, from the others who didn't appreciate your message? It would seem that Jesus didn't mind at all His followers defending themselves. Now, they didn't go out looking to kill people but they could at least defend themselves under the threat of those that were coming against them. You'll notice as you look at that slide with me, there's no question the New Testament does encourage us to be filled with love. Love for our spouse, love for our family, love for the brethren, love for our enemies. In fact, love is one of the key words found in the pages of the New Testament. But may I say it doesn't again seem consistent to pit the love of one superior, if you please, over against the love of another like our children or our families. It is true as you look at verses like Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. Would I let an intruder... As I sit by and do nothing, harm, impair, rape a member of my family. Ignoring that verse and all the while elevating Matthew 5, 44 far above it, that doesn't seem consistent. On the other hand, would it be far better to try to impair, to try to stop as best as possible? Maybe don't kill him at the moment if I can avoid it because I'd like to see him stand charges for this. But could I at least impair him? If I could, I would try. I believe any of us would. For that would be consistent with having a sword, wouldn't it? Isn't it true in light of those things? We do find in Romans chapter 12 one final comment before the lesson concludes. And it has to do with the matter of vengeance. It is true that God says vengeance belongs to Him, not to us. And so if someone, in fact, has done something to myself or my family in perhaps days long past, and that particular matter has been dealt with, perhaps by law and otherwise, it isn't right for me to continue to take vengeance on that person, to withhold from him that which would be right inside of, in the light of the gospel. We have to make a clear distinction between vengeance, it seems, and self-defense. It might well be in light of those things. We close that slide by noting 
be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. If someone else has been motivated by evil, a thief, a person who is a rapist or otherwise, if that person has been motivated by evil, that doesn't mean you and I must allow that evil to sustain and to, in fact, remain superior. But we in love attempt to protect those whom we love, and all the while, if at all possible, to make circumstances such that that one may pay for his error and that evil may be rightly approached, but that hopefully in time the gospel can reach them. Maybe it's fair to say as we've talked about self-defense tonight, we've looked at five passages of Scripture. Exodus 22, Nehemiah 4, Ezekiel 9, 1 Timothy 5, and Luke 22. And it seems particularly interesting to reflect on the Lord's command to them to take that sword. I'd like to say I'm not encouraging anybody to go out and buy a gun. That's your decision. That's my decision. That would be the decision of a particular individual, what you felt comfortable with or not. But it does seem that it's not inconsistent for a Christian to have one. And it's not inconsistent for a Christian to use one to defend himself, his family, those he loves. It is with that, let's close our lesson. As we've thought about self-defense and thought about these matters, hopefully none of us will ever have to face a scenario like this. But in the world in which we live, it wouldn't be surprising if we did. May God be with us in safety. May we pray for His constant protection over us so that He might in fact make circumstances so that He'll keep us from the evil. This very night, it, there may be someone in the audience whose life isn't consistent with the Word of God. Maybe as a Christian, you have begun to live in a way in which you now regret. Things that you've done or said, choices that you've made have reflected very poorly on the one that died for you. Please come back to your first love tonight. Invite us to pray to God on your behalf. As you confess those things and repent of them, God will forgive them. If you, though, have never become a Christian, what better night than this one could there be? January the 8th, 2017. Your spiritual birthday and what a lastingly, eternally significant day for you it would be. If we could assist anybody tonight in your response to the gospel in a public way, we'd be delighted to do that. We'd only urge you and invite you to come while together we stand and sing.